Welcome to the 902 podcast, the official podcast of the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm Captain John Vick, and I want to thank you for tuning in. This podcast will give you an inside look at LSO with topics and guests to discuss public safety issues impacting Lancaster County. Be sure to subscribe for highlights on news cases and the people working for you at LSO. You can also follow us across social media by searching for at LSO Nebraska. That's at LSO Nebraska on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Welcome to the 902 podcast. We are here in studio today with Sheriff Wagner and Chief Deputy Houchin. Thanks for being here, guys. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, another one. Good afternoon. Hello. And today we are talking about our criminal interdiction task force, and no one better to talk to about that than Sergeant Jason Mayo. So, Jason, thanks for being here. Yep, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're going to get into all things criminal interdiction here in a few minutes, but uh, like we usually do before we dive into that, we want to know a little bit about you. So let our listeners know where you're from. Well, grew up uh, western Nebraska or central Nebraska in Custer County, Broken Bow. Came down to UNL for college, uh, graduated with a criminal justice degree, and I thought you were going to say honors. But that's what I, I thought gonna, too. I was going <laughs> to call that out. I think I had honors. Yeah, I had some kind of honors. I'm sure you did. Um, and actually, interned here at the office when I was at school at UNL, so I got to know some of the guys here, and worked at a uh, juvenile rehab place for a little bit. And about a year after college, I started working here in 2003 been here ever since did we have interesting work for you to do as an intern or or were you sorting paper clips or what was your internship like originally no it was uh updating some alarm system which was pretty bad and then i got looped into the criminal investigations division ah. and that's <clears throat> they're a little more lax then with what they allowed interns to do and so they tell me oh you go out back and wait for this guy to come out and if he runs he's got a warrant i'm like okay you know i didn't know any better and that Rules have since changed, but yeah. I had a lot of fun with those guys then. Well, that's good. That's good. So I was like, hey, I could work there. That's kind of cool. That's it. It's a good plug. We do still have an internship program. We don't make people sort staples, and uh, we also don't make them chase criminals usually. So Correct. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it, it's a good way to get a foot in the door and learn a little bit about us, so I'm glad that that worked out for you. So you applied then uh, after college? Yep. After college, came here. Yeah, that's the only place I applied. Um, we used to have joint hiring then with... LPD and mm-hmm. LSO, but I just put in for LSO. So, okay. And uh, was your interview with the sheriff any better than mine? With him, yeah. I mean, that was fine the, yeah. at the time. It, he was nice. Okay. Okay. The other side. Mm. The chief deputy was quite so nice. I didn't think I had a job. I'll just tell you that. Yeah, I don't think anybody <laughs> ever thought they had a job when they walk in there, but that's, that's the way it goes. So, all right. So fast forward, then you you get you get hired. Um, go to the academy. We were previous episode we met john brady he mentioned that you guys went to the academy together yeah we did he was both our roommates flunked out and he was working for a different agency at the time so we got roomed together so we spent uh probably three quarters of the academy as roommates cool a couple years later he got hired on here so okay so what have what's your career path kind of been like at uh, at lso then um come back like everybody else i was in patrol for a while um Got a criminal investigations division after a couple of years as a criminal investigator and did that. And then I came back out to patrol for a short time. And I got uh, chosen to go into the narcotics task force. Mm-hmm. And so I was in that for a little over three years and came out of that in 2000. 
12-ish and was a little bit taken back by the change in pace, which I think everybody that's in that unit would probably tell you it's kind of a big adjustment period mm-hmm. you know, to come back to the road after being in an um, investigative position like that where you're pretty busy um, right. uh, with different types of the narcotics stuff in Lincoln. <laughs> but yeah, and then, then I kind of knew that the, all the drugs we looked at for the those years in the task force and even it dealt a lot with criminal investigations. I mean, I would say 90% of our cases were related some way, shape or form to substance abuse. I mean, that's burglaries, thefts, robberies, homicides, even related to substance abuse. So I'd kind of dealt with that for a couple stints and, and I knew, Hey, I'd take some classes. I'm like, this stuff's coming in on the interstate. And so while working patrol, um, in free time when third shift would come on, uh, we'd go up, go up to the interstate and I had some success up there, um, just stopping cars and, and kind of using the skills that I'd learned in different positions and um, able to get some loads off the interstate of, of some methamphetamine and, and marijuana and some other things. And, um, and shortly thereafter, uh, Sheriff and uh, then Chief Deputy would have been Blymeister. We're like, hey, if we give you guys more time or can make this work staffing-wise, do you think you can make an impact up there? So yeah, eventually I, we got that. And I, I remember, because I think I... I think I followed you into criminal. I think I think I took your spot maybe yep. around that time. And I think then, so. Because the thing that I remember about it, and and this is you especially, but but several people that have gone to the narcotics task force have gone to other specialized positions, and you know, sheriff. I think credit to you. You know, you you allow us to rotate through a lot of positions, and I think we're better for it because it seems like when people go into those specialized positions. They come out with a lot of knowledge on whether it's search warrants, whether it's knowing stuff about narcotics, and then you're able to apply those things when you're back on the road. And that's the whole point of it. That's the whole point of rotating people in and out, is that they get that much broader experience than they normally would get. Sure. And then come back and help help their fellow deputies uh, on the road and uh, apply what they've learned. Well, as a fellow deputy of you at the time, I'm thinking back, but I, I mean, I certainly remembered seeing that. I'm like, man, how does Jason know? all this stuff like you just seem to be getting into getting into calls and cases all the time and it you know it wasn't until I kind of knew my way around a little bit oh okay he's he knows a little bit more about what to look for and knows kind of who's in the game so to speak right yeah you just it helps you put stuff together and like I said I think the combination of the criminal investigations deputy work and and then uh, narcotics unit um, it, it definitely opens your eyes to what is going on beyond um your normal calls for service and, and what kind of happens in, in the area. Unfortunately, a, a darker side, I guess, of, of the area as far as uh, things that go on. Sure. So we're timeline wise, we're in kind of when, when did we officially form our, our interdiction unit? 2012 is when we started it up and going and then probably 13, 213 yeah. is yeah, when um, it took off. Okay. So what, just for our, our listeners that are out there, what, what is our criminal interdiction? It was a unit, and then it became a task force. So what is that task force, and why do we have one? Well, now, I mean, originally, when we first started, it was just myself and Deputy Hinkle, who at the time uh, was a canine handler with our office. Yep. And uh, we were both up there assigned there um, full time. Uh, we were able to replace that canine on the road uh, eventually uh, to have a patrol dog on the road, but that was kind of it to start with, and as we... Uh, got busier and more cases were coming. We realized the need for um, thorough investigative follow-up. We kind of added to those positions and, and utilized um, some of the asset forfeiture to provide. Kind of sustain the program. 
to have another employee to replace, um, which you can use that for. We can talk well, about that Well, we kind of did it with a criminal analysis uh, deputy who came in there in the investigator part, and uh, he did it part-time, and uh, it came real soon to see that we could keep them busy full-time and uh, on what was going on up there, and so that eventually is what transpired. And then I don't remember when LPD decided to come back, come over and uh, join our task force. In 2016 to 17, um, we'd spoken with the police department. Um, and we'd spoken with some federal entities about their ability to do kind of um, bridge that gap between the federal system and the state system. And we kind of settled with, with Homeland Security. Um, that's just because they deal with uh, not just drugs. You know, if you deal with DEA, they're dealing with just drugs. Yep. We, we were, had kind of seen that we see a big variety of things on there. Uh, yeah. Every, all kinds of crimes. So um, Homeland Street kind of fit the bill as far as their willingness and uh, ability to assist us in our investigations. And so in that, uh, we partnered with the police department and I think they rotated through, they opened that up and I think I had ride-alongs with me to kind of see what they thought of it. And if it's something they wanted to do for two and a half or three months straight, I had guys with me every single day. And w then we, had a hiring panel basically from them for a specialized spot. And, and so we got a, a John Hudick joined us from them um, into 2016 into 2017, I believe is when they jumped in. So Sheriff, this is kind of an evolution. This, this program had grown from a very small unit from, you know, making some good cases up on the interstate, dedicating some more resources, bringing in partners. We've got a hundred things that we can do with our time, but we got to choose what we're going to do. What, what was it? for you as the sheriff that, that said, this is, this is something that we need to make a priority and what were your goals? Well, it, you know, it's, it's to eliminate or certainly have an, an, an impact on criminal enterprise. And um, it's not just the assets that we're seizing, it's the amount of narcotics that, that are transported through Lancaster County Kids that are being human trafficked we've, that we've recovered, um, wanted people that have been wanted for over 30 years that we have arrested, uh, you know, a number, I mean, scores of guns uh, that we have taken off the interstate that, that our um, police folks have, and wanted people, stolen credit cards and credit card imprinters, um, loads of catalytic converters, and so it's every kind of crime you can think of <clears throat> that's transnational is generally going to go through Nebraska on I-80. And so, um, you know, our goal there, and, and this was our goal early on, was that, you know, especially from the asset forfeiture perspective, we've got to make the nexus between the crime and the money. Mm -hmm. And we can't just seize the money without linking it to the underlying criminal enterprise. So that's been our that's been our guiding light the entire 10 years we've had the program. Um, and I'd like to mention our follow-up with our what our people yeah. are doing with the, you know, it's not just make the case, make their arrest, and we're uh, done with it. Um, there's a ton of follow-up going on it with on their cell phones and doing the work. And then we uh, contact outside agencies, federal and state, and all the locals on where uh, the case is going, and we feed them that information, and we continue the the case further because it's not just catching the guy driving the car because he's usually not the big one that's uh, 
the big fish. In some cases, they're just a hired courier, right? Sure, and they don't necessarily know what they're what they're hauling. So let's let's back up just a little bit because I'm I'm guessing that there's some people listening that they are not exposed to the sorts of things that uh, that you're seeing up on the interstate every day, Jason. So you know, John and Jane Citizen in Lancaster County. With what frequency are we? Are we actually, how much of this is out there? Right. I mean, we're only, and people say stuff about this all the time on their, when they're on a rant, but, you know, we catch a small percentage, obviously. We call it the low-hanging fruit is, is what the reality is from everything that's coming through. Um, but, you know, I-80 is, is the most trafficked interstate in the United States, mm-hmm. New York to San Francisco. There's more commercial traffic on I-80 than any other interstate in the United States. It's a busy highway. And like Sheriff kind of said, they have to go from point A to point B, and that's going to be their most vulnerable because it's not at their house. It's not at the place they're doing their um, criminal activity. They've got to get their stuff from point A to point B somehow. Mm-hmm. And so we, we catch a portion of that because sometimes people choose to drive, you know, on the interstate. But Sheriff kind of touched on it. I mean, with the fraud-related activity, if you've read, ever had your credit card get a call and they say, hey, are you in, you know, so-and-so Florida right now spending money at a Walmart? You're like, uh, no. We get those guys. And and. What I mean by that is we get the people who are responsible for taking your stolen credit card information, driving across the country and using it until it gets canceled, and then they use another one, and they'll have thousands of them, and they'll have all the equipment to overwrite it, and they'll have the equipment to um, switch cards and to rewrite the cards, and, to, and but they'll just and they'll come back, and we'll see them with the proceeds of that, whether it's property that they purchased, you know, with your number, sure. and they're taking it back to wherever they're going, or whether that's enough, they'll buy gift cards a lot. So when we've got them with twenty, thirty thousand dollars worth of gift cards from a short run, they'll do a two-day run and they'll come back home and reset. Um, but outside of the fraud, like you said, we see, we see human trafficking a lot. We see where people are—it's not necessarily always indentured servitude of of someone who's forced to to work in, say, the sex trade, like someone might mm-hmm. think about with human trafficking. Um, but you'll see underage minors who are taken from home, who are missing, wanted, endangered children, missing, endangered people, older people with mental health problems that are, aren't found. We see those people all the time. Um, tons, a lot of weapons, a lot of weapons running back and forth, whether that's not necessarily all going to, say, the border, but they might be going to uh, someplace in Arizona to be traded for narcotics. So we'll see that going both ways. Um, it's, it's just a little bit of everything. And, and those and those are all things that are happening right here in Lancaster County. Yeah, and, and, and some of those people are from the area. If they're from Douglas County. They're from Lancaster County. They, they can... We get the same people that we get from, say, New York. Mm-hmm. We've got the same people that have a Lincoln address doing it. Right. Um, yeah. So it, it kind of goes all over. You know, some, <clears throat> some people are threatened by the cartels. Their families are threatened if you don't make this load, you know, to Chicago or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, harm is going to come to your family. And so people do it under duress. And so it's, uh, it's basically the trafficking that Jason's talking about that um, people feel like they have to comply or their family is going to suffer harm in, in either Mexico or, or someplace like that. I, I think it's, it's easy to think that it, Lincoln and Lancaster County are very safe places in the United States. And so it's easy to think that everything's just fine and that none of these things happen here. And, and as much as I'd like to, to believe that, I think it's, I think it's important that we, we not, we not hide the fact that that stuff happens. Yeah, you, you can't keep your head in the sand all the time because, I mean, it is out there. And and let, let's say, you know, it doesn't always make the media on what we are doing up there. And um, But what we are doing up there is so important. It may not always uh, 
be saving somebody's life here in Lancaster, but it may be saving somebody's life in New York or LA or Florida and all those mm -hmm. parts of it because mm -hmm. that's where it's going and, and th there's a lot of big money coming through. Hey, I'm Captain John Vick with the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office. When it comes to your career, don't settle for good enough. Don't settle for ordinary. We won't either. Be different, be better, be exceptional. Start your future today at joinlso.com. Jason, obviously we're not going to be able to get into, you know, every every tactic and every strategy that we use um, if if we did you wouldn't be any, you wouldn't be as good as what you're, as, as you are, what you do. But for, for people that kind of don't know how it works, walk us through what, what does a typical, a typical stop or typical case look like hypothetically? So, I mean, on the interstate when we're up there, we just, we stop vehicles. And when you're in the process of stopping people, the majority of them are just like anyone listening. They're not involved in criminal activity. They're traveling from point A to point B and they want to get on their way. So you'll, stop them for a traffic violation and tell them about it and what it is and, and kick them loose. So sometimes in the media we hear that, well, we're, um, you, you guys are just stopping people just for the sake of stopping them. We, can you guys do that? No, yeah, you have to have probable cause to, to, to stop the car, and we, we, the good thing is everything's recorded now eight ways of the Sunday, so there's, there's a lot of video, and it's, it's a very good thing. Uh, but so when we stop enough vehicles, we'll stop certain vehicles that maybe the occupants aren't the normal people, and you can tell that from, from training and experience, and if they do set off some red flags we'll, we'll speak to them throughout the stop and 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 through the course of our investigation on the side of the road and we'll get to a point where we either consensually uh, search the vehicle if we can or sometimes we'll run a, a canine on the vehicle if we can um, or maybe we'll have probable cause uh, from some other reason and we'll search the car and if we find contraband uh, whatever that may be um, we will document that on the side of the road and depending on what that is the person will either have to go to jail or if it's not something that's uh, a criminal offense in Nebraska, but it's illegal to have, which happens a lot. Um, those people might be released from the side of the road, but we will continue the investigation uh, with our federal partners um, from that point forward. Okay, so to get back to Chief Deputy Houchin's point, that, that kind of covers the day of, right? But there's a lot of follow-up that goes into things too. So, um, you know, I, th I think the big things we, we hear about in the media are, big seizures of drugs or big seizures of money. Right. So what, what takes place after, after the contact at the car? So we, we always try to do our best. Like uh, Chief Deputy Houchin spoke on it a little bit, but we, we understand the, the smuggling process and we understand that uh, the, the communities that it affects, the, the loads that we stop might not be Lincoln. It might be Des Moines. It might be Chicago. It might be Detroit. But so what, and, and then where it came from, right? So we always try to determine where the person's coming from, where they're going to, and then we work really, really hard at electronically being able to, to get a little more, whether through a search warrant or consent. That's any electronic item in the car, computers, phones, uh, GPSs, things like that. Because they're using these to, as a part of their, their business. Yeah, facilitating their criminal activity, right? And so those things will give us an idea of, of how to follow this person and to figure out where they're going or where they're coming from, who they're dealing with on, on those sides. And we try to reach out and make the case effective on both ends. And, and oftentimes the local law enforcement or the federal entity that we contact are aware of these people in some way, shape or form. And if not, they are now, and they start working their own case 
based off the information we give them, and, and the case moves up from there to the people that are responsible for uh, whatever that criminal activity is. Okay. And all, these, guys have, these guys have gone all over the nation testifying to what happened in Nebraska when a case is made uh, at, at their source or their destination, and um, as a result of the work that, that uh, the task force here does, uh, it's instrumental in getting criminal convictions in those other areas. So well, well, we've even continued on and let the load to go with our control. Mm-hmm. Right. You know. Yeah. If the if the people are couriers, oftentimes they they will continue to cooperate, and that's a, a big reason why um, we're not able to release the information right away because right. that that cooperation might not start that day because of a lot of myriad of issues. But maybe it starts in a week. Maybe it starts in two weeks. And we have to do certain things investigatively to, to make sure that the we have the, the best opportunity to try to get you uh, don't want to burn them. Yeah, get the criminalization yeah. that's responsible um, to find those locations. So one thing that has been talked about a lot in recent media articles um, nationally, locally, is this concept of asset forfeiture. And uh, we, we touched on it a little bit as we were going through some of these examples earlier, but what what is asset forfeiture and you know how does it work in law enforcement well there's there's different sides to it but the state and federal people always talk about that there's two different issues but the the basic idea is that you're able to take assets from people who are involved in or where they derive those assets from some sort of criminal activity and not allow them to continue to use that to help the organization out so whether that's vehicles property um, cash things of that nature, but anything to alleviate their ability to profit off criminal activity, um, that's what we do. And then there's two different angles that we can look at that from. One's a federal angle and one is a state angle as far as how we take those assets. Um, on the federal side, um, they, they, they kind of put a money, a money number on, hey, we'll look at cases that are over $25,000. That's kind of our bottom line, unless it's involved in an ongoing case. So something that's someone might call and say, hey, this, these guys are doing X, Y, or Z. Can you guys help us out? And that might be less than that amount of money, mm-hmm. but they will allow that. But for monetary purposes, money, 25000 is the line between federal and state. Um, so anything under that, you're supposed to seize through state statute. And okay. the legislature changed those uh, a couple of years ago. They made mm-hmm. some changes um, to that law. So that's kind of the difference between state and federal, where it would go through state court, um, Versus the federal side where people say, well, they're not getting charged with a crime because we can't prove that from the side of the road. So my my big takeaway from, from, the, from the two systems is um, people don't understand legislatively what was written in the state statute, and they don't understand how it's been um, interpreted by the courts on a local level or on a state level. So for me, as a supervisor of this unit and, and as we're operating every day, if we don't stop a car. If we stop a car with $24,000 in it westbound um, headed back to somewhere and we can't prove on the side of the road that that person delivered narcotics and just narcotics, we have to prove that they delivered narcotics or intending to drive narcotics through Nebraska. We can't take them. We can't throw them in jail for Nebraska revised statute, which is possession of drug money for layman's sure. terms. Yep. So we have to prove a lot of things on the side of the road to be able to lodge somebody in jail for that crime, okay. right? Um, oftentimes we can't prove that. Now, do, do I have probable cause they did that? At times maybe, but say they're involved in gambling, say they're involved in human trafficking, say they're involved in credit card fraud. 
the Nebraska statute does not apply. We Nebraska is the only one of two states in the United States that does not have a money laundering statute. Okay. We, don't, we don't have one. We can't do anything with it. So on the federal side, HSI covers a myriad of crimes, not just specifically related to drugs, but we tell them the details of the case that we have roadside, and if they agree to take that case, we will move federally with that um, and, and carry on with that case. So those people, we have no legal standing to throw them in jail for a crime. Um, so it's not really, it's a, it's a legislative issue, not a you guys are just taking money and letting people go. Like we cannot arrest them. Okay. We're not allowed to. And that's mainly legislative based off several things. Okay. So we are, we are seizing assets from people when they are the proceeds of criminal activity. Correct. And, and that information that you develop hey, oftentimes Jason, roadside. Jason, can you tell a little bit, like how, how do you know maybe that money is being used criminal? What, what do they try to do to prevent you from finding it? Well, I mean, you'll have a lot of things, but I mean, I don't think people realize how far people go to hide this stuff. So say, just for example, if they have a hypothetical, a rental big SUV mm-hmm. and you stop somebody and they have, you know, one overnight bag in there. They said they went somewhere for four weeks to hang out with somebody. And the reality is they rented the car two days ago and they drove clear across the country and they're heading back through you right now. And they say, oh yeah, you can search my car. I don't have anything. And you find $400,000 inside the spare tire mounted to the bottom of a Chevy Tahoe. And you say, geez, you know, what's, what's this? And they'll go, I, I had no idea that was there, man. If I did, boy, I'd be a lot richer. Like, so you didn't have any idea this was there. Like, nope, no idea at all. So the federal system, they have what's called an abandonment form, and these guys know that, but they likely aren't going to get charged with anything because we can't prove that that person is driving drugs through Nebraska or, or taking drugs the other way. Right. And so we, they can sign the abandonment form. They don't have to. They have the same option 60 days from, from the day that they're going to send them notice in the mail. That's, there's no difference. If they sign it or they don't, I don't really care. But on the side of the road, we're able to reach out to our federal partners, to the state and locals, to see a myriad of things that they can tell us how oh, this person's involved in X, Y, or Z, or they have an open case with the DEA out of this group, or they're involved in this and been arrested three times for manufacturer possession with intent, delivery narcotics. Um, so we know those things on the side of the road. And even if they say, well, that's not mine, I had nothing to do with it. We still take all their, their phones to be asked for consent on their phones. We, if we can't get consent, we'll attempt to write a search warrant for it because we do want to know where's it coming from? Where's it going to? This isn't the only time you've done this probably to, to try to further that case. So, um, but yeah, on the side of the road, you're kind of limited to your interview of those people sure. and, and what you see in the car. And that car becomes your crime scene. And then you just reach out to your resources with the, the federal entities and state entities that, that may have dealt with these people uh, in the past to figure out kind of what they're doing. It, what always amazes me is are the hidden compartments. So if it's not a rental vehicle, <clears throat> like Jason mentioned, the spare tire situation, they'll find a natural void in the body or interior of a vehicle and hide their drugs and or money in those in those natural voids to try to avoid detection. So, you know, we've got some great equipment that can look in those voids, a handheld X-ray machine, uh, some other things to be able to determine if there's something in those natural voids inside of a fender or inside of a seat or whatever the case may be. It's Yeah, it amazes me uh, what lengths they go to. Well, I they think, make them electronic and doing all yeah, that. Yeah, and I, they, have the safe, they have safety you know, you got to push this button and hold your tongue a certain way and then step on this button at the same time to get the electronic door to open to access that hidden compartment. So it always amazes me when they discover those things. Um, but 
I mean, they even had a, a false wall in the sleeper of a semi where drugs were concealed in that false wall. And so it's, it's pretty elaborate. Yeah, um, it's not people going to go buy a, a, a brand new car with money yeah. in their pocket. And that's one of the most frustrating things is when people start to say that and we know what the exact truth is and what they're hiding and how they're hiding it because the normal folks don't do that with their money. To that point, there are a lot of narratives out there and, and you know, some some pictures that are painted that, well, this is someone's life savings or, um, you know, we're, we're tricking people into signing a form and, and handing over cash. What would you say to people that, that say that? Well, like the, the form thing I kind of talked about it, it, it does not matter to me whether they sign it roadside or not, really what it means to them. And I explain this to them and it's on camera every time. If you don't sign this form, they're going to send you one in the mail. No big deal. If you don't want the feds to call you, in 60 days or talk to you or see how you got this or where it came from or dig into your taxes, you can sign this form today, but you have the same option. You can talk to a lawyer. They're going to send you notice out in the mail, and most people understand that. And they're, they're not just signing it to avoid jail or anything like no, that. We're, yeah. we're not threatening them. They're just saying, I didn't know that this was in here, or I, it's not mine, and I don't want anything to do with it. That's what they sign. We're not taking Our, their life savings. Yeah, there, there's, some, there's some narratives out there that, you know, this money was saved up to buy a car or that right. it was someone's life savings or... We're just we're just taking a guess that that this is related to criminal activity. What would you say to people that, yeah. that say that? Like on the side of the road, uh, we talk to people. We ask them what they're going to do, and and the people that are legitimately taking cash across the country, and I have no problem with that. And um, they'll tell you this is where it's going from. Here's where I pulled it out of. Here's the receipts. Here's this. I've saved it up for this long, and I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. And we don't we probably we've given back. We had a rolling tab, but I mean over millions of dollars we have not seized on the side of the road because people have plausible explanations for why they're traveling from point A to point B with this amount of currency. You know, you can bring a million dollars. It doesn't matter. But it's, if you're legitimately have it and it's there and you're going to bite, it's more power to you. Not a problem in my book, but um, so we explain that to them. And, and eventually on the side of the road, if you're speaking to someone who's involved in criminal activity, it comes out. Um, and we have a very, very good idea uh, of what they're doing and we can prove it from the side of the road before we take anything like that. And if let's, Let's say despite our best efforts, we're wrong. D do people have recourse to get that money back if, yeah. if we have seized it? Yeah, it's, it goes through about eight levels of lawyers through the federal system, and each one of those levels is checking over everything involved with it and has the ability to return that with, with proper documentation, basically. And, and it, to us, that doesn't happen. I can very, very rarely have, have it can't remember one off the top of my head where that's ever happened but yeah. um they do have recourse and that's either through the united states attorney's office or directly through the, the federal entity we certainly do not have people calling us after we seize money saying hey we want our money back i can think of only about one on, off the top of my head being part of that and eventually the truth came out on that too yeah. so when we release something to the media that we've made an arrest on Interstate 80, whether it be for drugs, whether it be for credit cards, whether it be for money, why can't we just release to the paper what they told us? And why can't we just explain how we connected it to criminal activity? Well, one of the big things is we don't want to give up our process on how we go about doing this so that uh, we teach the criminals to become better criminals mm -hmm. is one big thing. On that, another big thing is 
if we're going to use this individual and continue to use them, if uh, you tell the media who they are and what's going on, you're, you're not going to be able to have that part of it go. So those are the big reasons why we don't end up doing that. And I'll let Jason continue if he's got more. Yeah, I mean, that's it goes back to our initial point of the purpose of the program and the purpose of, of our us being up there is to make the biggest impact we can, not locally, but but wherever wherever that impact can be. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes that means not releasing stuff until we're safe and able to do so. That might be an indictment. That might be multiple indictments. That might be a week later. It might be 10 years later. We're still working cases. Our cases are still being actively investigated that have been going for six, seven, eight years. And we're <clears throat> probably not going to see the light of day until those the entire organization is, is, is arrested or held responsible. Yeah, and I, you know, Sheriff, as much as we'd like to be transparent and every, you know, comment that's on Twitter or Facebook, you know, questioning whether or not we're we're stealing someone's money or whether we're doing things up there. I mean, as much as we would like to respond to every one of those, we just simply can't. Well, generally, it's um, people just don't know the process. They don't understand to what extent this is really occurring and to what extent people go to to, to transport either contraband, whether it be that money, drugs, guns, or whatever the case may be, across the nation and so you know it's uh it's just really short-sighted on their part to to pass judgment like that without knowing the full story and they probably never will know the full full story so one of the the phrases that's been coined out there is policing for profit and that the only reason that we're doing this is because we get part of the proceeds of this so is is that true do we get part of the proceeds of of money that's seized yes we do yep we do okay and um a lot of the reasons why this agency has become the agency it is is because of the money that has been seized, and we are able to, to send our people to trainings. We are able to get equipment that uh, we would not be able to do. We are using this money so the taxpayers do not have to pay for these things. One of the key things we ended up doing is making a committee, um, and uh, – the committee hears, and of course the sheriff has the final say on that, of what we want to use this money for. And the big thing is is we're using it for the right reasons. There's there's no f- extreme fast cars or anything of the craziness that you hear that, that happens. This is going back to our people for equipment, for training, for the community to make it safer. Well, there are some very strict guidelines on what that money can be used for, and, and you have to adhere to the rules. I mean, it's we're audited on our pretty regular basis on what we're buying with that money and, um, you know, making sure that we are adhering to the rules uh, for the, for that uh, asset forfeiture. So, you know, we have, uh, we have used it in the manner that it's intended. Um, We haven't come under scrutiny. We haven't had to repay money because we used it for the wrong thing. Um, And um, it has, it has benefited the citizens of this county greatly. Um, you know, we have an electronic evidence unit that, you know, has some software costs us seventy five thousand dollars a year, and we're able to pay for that with forfeited assets, and it furthers all of our investigations, not just interdiction investigations, but all criminal investigations across the county, and um, you know, it's one of those that that was uh, that electronic evidence unit is a direct result of the success of the interdiction unit, and it has benefited all criminal 
uh, investigations in, within city and county, uh, within the city and the county. So, oh, and even further than that, Omaha has sent some of their yeah, phones up a here lot to of, us. A lot of homicides. agencies in the state will send their phones or, or computers or laptops or whatever to us for analysis because we have the equipment to do it and the expertise and the training for our folks. So it's really been a, a great benefit. Um, yeah, so, you know, I've done... Uh, I was asked to do a presentation at the International Association of Chiefs of Police by Homeland Security Investigations because of, number one, of the success of our unit, number two, uh, for for how we implement um, the unit and the proceeds and, and not uh, not do things that we aren't supposed to be doing. And so, um, and I've also written uh, an article for the National Sheriff's Association magazine uh, along those same lines urging administrators across the nation to make sure they follow federal guidelines um, and that, uh, you know, together we can make a huge impact on organized crime if we follow the rules. One of those rules is is that we can supplement our budget, but we can't supplant our budget. Can you Correct. help people understand how that works? Okay, let's say we uh, budget $100,000 for patrol cars, and um, all of a sudden we say, well, Okay, county board, we don't need that hundred thousand. We're going to put fifty thousand dollars of forfeited assets in with that, so we're only going to need fifty thousand. You can't do that. Okay. Um, if, however, we spend a hundred thousand dollars on patrol cars, and we, uh, you know, we we wreck a car or it becomes disabled, then we may be able to use forfeited assets to to replace that vehicle because it wasn't an originally budgeted article. So. That's sort of the difference between supplanting and supplementing. So it can assist us, but it can't replace. Correct. Our, our budget. The county, the county board can't reduce our budget because of because the of the of the of forfeited assets. So that's that's the main that's the main thing. You know, and some of the stuff we use this money for is you know we've remodeled our whole um, sheriff's office yep. without having to spend any of the taxpayers' money for doing that and. Some of these projects are a half million dollars, and um, we probably one wouldn't be able to do it as quickly as we could on getting these things done and update. It's been 20 years or plus since we've had uh, any kind of upgrade in some of these areas. So, but yeah, we're we're getting that done. We're modernizing, but the taxpayers are not feeling it. And instead, it's being paid for by criminals. By criminals. Yes. So. I, you know, I don't think that's a I don't think that's a bad a bad trade uh, at the end of the day. You know, well, I've, I've said it before, and, and you know, somebody said, "Well, let's just do away with the with the forfeited assets." Well, it it really doesn't make sense if you have a burglar that's using a crowbar, um, you know, for to break into cars to give him his crowbar back after the case is adjudicated. It, it was doesn't make sense, and so. The same thing really does hold true on a larger scale. On a larger scale with, with the funds. As a matter of fact, if if we burned the money, if we determined that money was proceeds from illegal uh, crime, burn it. If if people don't want us to have that money, burn it. Um, that way, the the criminal enterprise doesn't have it. We don't have it. Nobody can complain. Well, and, and another question, and I know you've been asked this before, but if if that money you know, went away, would we still, would we still try and make a dent in these crimes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm a, what started off as, as, you know, 
pre-legalized marijuana in a number of states, and, and there was quite a bit of marijuana being transported from legalized states and, and to other non-legal states. That really was sort of the initial, I think, my thought. I don't know about yours, Jason, but that's sort of my thought of we're going we're gonna to make a, a, a huge dent in the uh, marijuana transportation. And then when you, you, know, you started getting into you know, kids being transported, uh, murderers transporting bodies across dead line, uh, state lines, the stolen credit cards, the stolen uh, catalytic converters, all of the associated crime that, that travels across this state, and you think, wow, it's not just about drugs. It, it's about criminal enterprise in its global form. A big majority of the cars that are getting contacted eastbound, so that means coming from California, Arizona, Texas, uh, anywhere out, out east Nevada, um, we get a lot of, we call them body smugglers, human smugglers. It's not human trafficking, but they're taking illegal crossers, illegal immigrants across the country to wherever they're going to go. And we've stopped those same people back westbound, um, and they'll have a lot of currency. And so they're taking advantage of those people by charging them instead of, it could cost those guys a thousand bucks to get a rental car. They're charging them eight thousand to mm-hmm. get them from here, point A to point B, and they take trip after trip after trip after trip, and that's not just happening here; it's happening all over the country. Talking to guys that do what we do, I mean, you'll exploitation of those people. You'll stop a vehicle, and you'll see eight heads pop up, and they're all just cross the border, and they're trying to get to point B. And and the other trend, big trend, we can talk about that in a little bit, but is, is fentanyl, as opposed to the hard dope loads that used to be, you'd see cocaine and maybe meth, and you'd see meth and maybe a little bit of heroin. Well, now that little bit of heroin, a little bit of cocaine that used to be kind of the sub kilo or two in the mm-hmm. load that's always fentanyl now so okay. every load almost has fentanyl pills is, is the primary one but any hard dope load is always mixed in not in the same package but it's fentanyl is with those which is a big change and, and i think everyone's seen those trends on the east coast sure and we don't need to say how dangerous fentanyl really is yeah i, I think it's it's made its way through the the media enough now that people are pretty familiar with that if you want a challenging career career where you can make a difference in your life, your family's life, and the lives of those in your community, come and join the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office. To learn more or to apply, visit us online at www.joinlso.com. What are we looking at when it comes to double jeopardy in these cases? Well, Surefighter kind of touched on it. Like, why would you give the guy back his pry bar when he's a burglar? Get rid of it, right? Well, Nebraska has a double jeopardy statute that applies to either finding someone guilty of a crime or seizing their assets. You can do either or. But you can't do both. Right. So there's, there's a lot of talk about other agencies recently and about, oh, they're taking all this money in the state, you know, and they're abandoning this currency and they're not charging them with a crime. Well, they can't. Legally, you can do one or the other. So if you charge them with possession of drug money, you can't legally seize their assets. take their assets. So what do you want? You're either going to want, you want the, all the people running drug money across the country to go to jail and fill up the prisons, or you want them not to be in prison and you don't want them to keep their assets from their, from their crime, right? And so that's a tough, that's a legislative issue. It's not a jurisdictional issue. It's a legislative issue that they need to fix with double jeopardy. It, it runs the same lines of the, the conspiracy statutes where there's a Supreme Court ruling you know, 20 years ago probably, um, something that happened in Colorado and back here where the Supreme Court laid out the legislature needs to change this statute because you can't charge one, charge someone in Nebraska with conspiracy for something that happened somewhere else. Um, it's never been fixed. And then, and for us, we have a local ruling that really affects us with our ability to arrest people for 
for the possession of drug money statute, and that's just a, a local thing, but we have to deal with that, and therefore we can't. That's their interpretation? Local would, state issue. Yeah, where we, we can't throw them in jail unless we do X, Y, or Z. We used to throw everybody in jail. Everybody got thrown in jail that we had for, for possession of drug money, and they were all prosecuted and convicted. Now you're not going to see that be, until the legislature changes how that statute reads. Okay. Makes it more clear, I guess. So to close out today, for people that are listening, how does the Criminal Interdiction Task Force make Lancaster County safer? Agencies send their people here and do ride-alongs and learn because it is very well known that LSO does it right. And I'm so proud of this, them, those guys because... Uh, Homeland Security will tell agencies, you need to go to Lancaster County. You need to see how they do it and model them. And so out of such a success, and Jason, you, you, you are a big, big part of that. And it makes me so proud that uh, we are doing that. And we have never given this practice a black eye in any way. And if anything, we are showing all the agencies this is how it's supposed to be done. And, and Jason and his unit have gotten award after award on a national level yes. for, um, you know, for doing such a great job. And, um, you know, I think um, John Hudick and you have both gotten the, uh, the uh, Blue Knight Award uh, from National Interdiction yeah, the, Unit. The interdiction yeah. Officer of the Year. Yep. We've gotten Interdiction Unit of the Year multiple times right. from Homeland Security, from National Criminal Enforcement Association. Yeah. A lot of agencies, EPIC, El Paso Intelligence Center. Yep. Um, but back to that kind of looping to your question, John, I mean, I, I think we kind of touched on it in, in little degrees on how we make everything safer, but I think if everybody turns their back, right, on whatever the criminal activity is that's happening in their area, you think it's bad now, wait till that happens. And um, if we all do our part, and that's, I'm not saying everybody needs to be up there on an interstate doing this with whatever the staffing is, but you do your part in your town, your city, your community that you're responsible for, for protecting, and you're going to touch a lot of people that are in that community and also people coming through. But if I stop somebody from Phoenix who's taking fentanyl to Philadelphia and I take, you know, we take kilos of, of fentanyl off this guy, maybe that's one person that doesn't OD in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're, we're able to get the group that's, that's bringing the, the fentanyl across uh, the border coming up and they're able to find where that's at. So for me, it's, it's kind of like a community policing thought process and that you don't really know how effective it is because, well, the cop was at that gas stations the guys didn't rob it Mm -hmm. so you don't know what you prevented right so you kind of have that that mindset that's what i have anyway is that you're never going to really know the lives you affected or didn't affect um by taking action or a stop that you made right and how many of our partners in philadelphia or phoenix are interdicting crimes that could ultimately be making their way here they they get nebraska people all the time and nebraska Nebraska cars lincoln cars sure preventing that overdose that that happens here yeah. Or, uh, or that child that's being trafficked from Lincoln and Lancaster County. I mean, we, I, I do think it's, it's so important that, you know, we, we, don't, we can't do it all. Um, but we do our part to try and, and contribute to, you know, the, the local, state, and national fight against crime. Yeah. It's everybody's problem, I think. It's everybody's issue, and everybody needs to, to do their it's part. It's a national issue. There's Absolutely. no question about it. Yeah. Yep. yep. You know, if we had a a load of stolen art, you know, we, and we could prove it was stolen, you know, it would go back to its owner, but it, that money that somebody paid for that art, 
would be assets, you know, that could be seized. So it, it, it's far-reaching. Sure. It is. Well, Jason, we just really appreciate you taking time out of your day today. Thank yeah. you for what you and your team do. You guys do a fantastic job and uh, look forward to uh, continued success. Yeah, now get back out there and do your thing, all right? It's hot outside. Come on. <laughs> right. Thanks for Thanks, being guys. here. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. That concludes this episode of the 902 Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to our episode about criminal interdiction with Sergeant Jason Mayo. Lots of questions about this in the media, and we hope that this episode provided a few answers and some insight into how our process works here at the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office. For other episodes of the 902 Podcast, be sure to check them out on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. We also have a new website that's up and running, and it's LancasterLookout.com. And this is the listing of the most wanted fugitives in Lancaster County. You can do your part by helping our Fugitive Task Force locate these individuals on this list. And there's a variety of ways on there that you can provide us with tips of where to find these wanted individuals. If you have comments, questions, or concerns about the podcast, feel free to reach out to us on social media, at LSO Nebraska, on Facebook, Twitter, which is now x.com. Instagram or YouTube. And you can also reach us on email at lso at lancaster.ne.gov. Thanks for listening.